All right. Okay, Tov. Morning. All right, so let's get going. Let's learn together, uh, learn together a little bit, go through uh, a few ideas. Primarily, we're going to focus on uh, miracles and how they play a role for us as Yidin, as Jews in Klal Yisrael. What's, what's the place of miracles? Are we impressed by miracles? What's like, what, what's the deal? What's the deal? How does, how does this whole thing work? So uh, I just want to begin with the story about my grandmother, my mother's mother, my, who we called Little Bubby. My mother's parents were both under five feet. So they were Little Bubby and Little Zadie. Uh, and their children are all six feet or taller, besides my mother who was like five eight. Um, so little Bubby and little Zadie had big children, uh, taller, uh, uh, taller children, um, but they were very, very strong and, and uh, specifically in their areas of Judaism, the areas of, of Yiddishkeit. My grandmother would tell us stories about her younger years. She was born in 1893 um, in Toronto, Canada. Interestingly, my great-grandfather, her father was the chief rabbi of Toronto, and they were from the only Jews in their public school. And she had a lot of beautiful uh, stories <laughs> that, that uh, she, would, she would share with us. Just to give you a little, uh, little example, um, she told us, she, her name was Leah, but her, her legal name was Lillian. They called her Lily. So there was, she said one time when she was in third grade, third grade, so the teacher was giving them like a kid's version of the Shakespearean story of the Merchant of Venice and, you know, a pound of flesh. And go, hold on. And one is a third, third grade. And one of the girls in the class said, well, isn't that just like a Jew? And my grandmother in third grade stood up, walked over her, and she, she said, and she would tell this to me when she, Leon Hara passed me when she was 107. So she told me this story when she was like in her hundreds, you know. And I said to her, well, isn't that statement just like a Christian? And I grabbed her by the ponytail and I yanked her pony to the floor. And, you know, her head had to follow her pony, you know. And she's like, she's like, am I teacher right now? She's telling this all. She, 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 for a very long time, she was standing up for, uh, for being Jewish and being, you know, representing, uh, representing Klal Yisrael. So, um, uh, when she was already elderly, there was a there was a number of uh, Jehovah Witnesses that were going around knocking on the door, and she said originally she would shoo them away, but at a certain point she realized that in the retirement community that she lived in, a lot of there were a lot of Jews, and a lot of them weren't as uh, knowledgeable as she was, so she purposely would bring them into her home, and spend hours and hours like wasting their time, so they couldn't get to anybody else. That's what she ultimately. Uh, that's what she ultimately did. So one specific uh, incident that she told us of is that one time uh, somebody knocked on her door and asked, uh, ma'am, do you have, have you ever seen miracles? And she says, I sure have. <laughs> and this person got very excited, she told us. She said, oh, finally somebody, an easy, easy bait, easy catch. She said, really, ma'am, what miracles have you seen? She says, well, people like you have been trying to get rid of us for 2,000 years, and I'm still here. <laughs> We're here. We're not going... You know, and just like the guy, the guy went running. Okay, so what is this whole idea of, of miracles? It is a miracle that we're here as Klal Yisrael, as people. But, you know, when things happen within our daily lives, and we, and we do here, you come across all these stories, especially on Google and YouTube, and all these crazy dreams that people had, and 
stories and they died and they came back and a whole, you know, uh, a whole to do. What are we to make of all this? And you, you'll hear from, and it goes from one extreme to another extreme. You hear some incredible stories, some Jewish guy, he went up to Gan Eden, he was in paradise and he met all the gedolim. Then you'll hear some, you know, somebody from 18,000 other religions, uh, which there's more than that. I believe in, in the year 2000, According to the Macmillan's Reference on World Religions, which is a group, a book put out by Christian missionaries, I believe in the year 2000, there were over 4,300 um, religions that were like officially in existence that had, you know, thousands of followers around the world. So there's thousands and thousands. Then you're going to hear all these wild stories and every religion is going to say, look, we have... You know, kind of like a propaganda machine type of thing. We have the, we went up to heaven and we found this. And what do you, what are we to what are we really to make of all this? And how does this fit into uh, to Yiddishkeit? So let's begin by looking at the Chavis Abavus. The Chavis Abavus is Duties of the Heart, written by Rabbeinu Bachia. Uh, not to be confused, there's a commentary of Rabbeinu Bachia on Chumash. That Rabbeinu Bachia lived about two hundred years after. Rabbeinu Bachia, who wrote the uh, who wrote the Chayvus Abavus, and um, there's uh, a lot of interesting uh, background and history and introduction to the Chayvus Abavus, where they discuss um, the importance of this work of the Chayvus Abavus uh, in the in the realm of Musr, amongst other things. But Rabbeinu Bachia, in the second chapter, lays out for us. And we've been doing this on Sunday mornings in shul uh, between the two minyanim. The seven criteria needed for a person to really trust in an entity. He goes through seven criteria. Um, for example, he says, "We'll start with. Uh, let's go through this in order." He says, "the The number one uh, criteria needed for us to place our trust in an entity is I need to know that entity cares, right? I need to know that entity cares. That entity is compassionate." And is going to do for me, and for, for me to rely on it, I need this entity to be compassionate towards me and not have strict justice with me. Otherwise, I can't really trust it because I can't, I can't really trust myself to know what I'm going to do. There has to be an element of compassion there. Number two is that this element that I'm placing my trust in can never divert its attention from me. It has to constantly be attentive because if it takes a break for even two seconds, what if something goes wrong during those two seconds? So I can't place my trust in an entity that at any moment in time is not going to is not going to be aware of what's happening. The third criteria is that this entity needs to be supremely powerful in a way where even if it's attentive, what if another power comes and says, hey, get out of my way, I'm the big kahuna now. So it needs to be more powerful than any other entity for, again, for me to place my absolute trust. I can always trust in something and I want to just give a preface Interestingly, Rav Dessler in Mechdom Elio says, he points out that a, a human being cannot live without trust. We all trust in things. Even those, who, even those of us who trust that there's nothing to trust, trust that there's nothing to trust. Understand? There are people who say, you can't trust anything. You can't trust anybody. True, but you're trusting in that. Just to get here today, we had to trust that about... I would venture to say 65 cars probably were driving as, you know, as I made my way here from the shul. 65 cars. I have to trust that their brakes are going to work. Otherwise, I wouldn't have come. 
that you can only live, there's trust. Now, with the Chavis, that's just a little bit of that. He's letting us know, but for me to place my absolute trust, now I don't have my absolute trust their brakes are going to work, it's risk versus reward. I just say, hey, you know, most people's brakes work, so I'm going to take that risk. But to place an absolute, where I'm going to dedicate my entire life to something, it must have, must be compassionate, it must never divert its attention, and number three is it needs to be strong enough that nothing else can ever get in its way. Nothing can stop it. The fourth criteria is that this entity that I'm placing my absolute trust in has no ignorance in anything that's going on with me. There's nothing hidden. Because sometimes you, you never go in a meeting with somebody and you want to like, put, I'm, I'm going to put everything on the table. And you think of it, everything on the table, and you walk in like, I should have said one more thing. Yeah, I should have... There was one more point maybe I could have mentioned over there. Even like in, in total openness and candidness and honesty, for me to fully trust, I need to know that this entity has complete knowledge, not only of what I do, but like the thoughts that led up to my actions and everything that's going on. I, I, I need to know that they know that. Because otherwise there's an incomplete relationship here. The fifth criteria needed for me to place my trust, says the Chaybis Ababis, is that... This entity has to be aware of everything that's happened in my life from the moment I'm born to the moment that we're, that we're in. Because you need to know my background, you need to know my history, you need to know all experiences that I've had to ultimately know what's best for me. I, we're not snapshots. We, you know, we're, we're a makeup of something that's so much bigger. I just recall sometimes you know, things are so simple, but they come together at various points in your life. And I don't, I don't know why this happened to me, but we were, my wife and I were driving back from a doctor's appointment in downtown Toronto, uh, where she's from. And we had a doctor's appointment there. This is maybe six, seven years ago. And there was, we, we pulled up the red light at an intersection. And Toronto is like so many different people it's like incredible we're all and this corner had hundreds of people in this one stoplight just like back and forth it was like an an, an ocean of people an ocean of people it was well over a hundred people just like at one time and for some reason i had this like this thing go off in my head and i turned my life i was like you know what's fascinating to each and every person here walking by we're props in their movie they're going to go home to a family. They're, they have a whole life. They're on their way to work. They're on their way to another appointment. They have this whole, they're the center of their world. And I'm just like a prop sitting in a car that like there happens to be somebody sitting in a car next to me. It's, it's, I'm not part of their movie. It's just like a prop, an extra. And they're that to me. I'm like, we're on our way back from a, you know, and we're going, we're going to visit my in-laws now. And we're going to them. And like these random people are just walking by. It's just like an extra in my movie. But that's what we are for each other. We have to realize that, you know, when Rabbi Brookwitz asked me, come, you know, come at 11.45, let's learn together. And that says, okay, so, so I'm coming and we're learning together and we're, all, and we're all sitting here. And each of you had your own experiences today that led up to the moment that we're all sitting here together in your own homes, in your own place, in your own phone calls that you had to make. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's depth to each of us. There, there's a world each of us really are an entire world. There's so much that makes us up from the moment that we're born. Every experience is important for what we need. That in order for me to trust in something, it must be aware not only of what's happening now and like 
a doctor that knows, okay, you have a little creak over here, so let's fix this. But like my, my overall, you have to know everything about me for me to place my absolute trust. Every experience, every thought from the moment I'm born up until now, that's the fifth criteria. In order for me to feel secure with you, I need you to know that you know me. I need to know that you know me. The sixth criteria, says the Chaybis Ababis, is that everything is in your control and you know what's best for me more than myself. Because a person can't testify about themselves. You're never gonna allow somebody to come into court and say like, oh yeah, I'll be my own, yeah, I'll be my own witness. You can't, because we ourselves have our own natural biases. We can't see beyond our own noses, which is the beauty of a community. It's the beauty of a group like this coming together and learning. I can only see things one dimensionally. I can only see what's in my own mind. Until I actually discuss and talk things through with other people, I don't really know if this is truth. Which is why the Mishnah in, in Pirkei Avos tells us that when a person learns Torah, God's there. When you learn Torah with another person, it's written down in the Book of Truth. Because you've bounced this idea, this concept off of somebody else. You've gone at it with them. You've struggled through it. You figured out, okay, I'm done two, at least two people, you, you've gotten closer to the truth. More people, fine. You know, the more people, the better until it gets to a certain point where nothing gets done. As they say, the number one reason why this world has not reached its potential is, there's one word, meetings. Yeah, there's one word, it's meetings. If you want to know why nothing gets done, everybody's in meetings. Go do something. You don't need to have a meeting. Right? Everybody knows. Anybody's been on a board meeting, a board meeting. Yeah. 15 people, 20 people, you get the most done at a board meeting when six people show up or less. And this way, you've finished, you know, 50 people, 20 people, it's much harder to get it done. Okay, but to, to then say, I, I know this for myself, it's not going to be, it's not going to be MS. You have to at least bounce your ideas off of others. So I need to know that this entity knows what's good, knows in a very comprehensive way what is good for me in order to place my absolute trust. And the seventh quality, the seventh criteria is that I'm only going to trust in something that's going to give to me whether I deserve it or not. Because if it's an entity that only gives me if I, if I deserve it, so then it's subjective. I need, to, I need to rely on an entity that's consistent. It's not moody. Not moody. Not going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day and be like, everybody out of the way. That is just, you know, now... What the Chavis Vavis does after breaking down what these seven things are, he says, go, go try to find a person like this. You know, obviously, we're going to be placing our trust in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's the only thing you could place your absolute, you could trust in other things as well. Again, you could place your trust on brakes of a car, but an absolute trust is impossible and really ludicrous to place on, on uh, anything else. Now, these are the seven. I want to ask you a question. Did the Chavis Vavis even mention that one reason to trust in an entity is that it could perform miracles? No. Interesting, doesn't say it. Doesn't say anything about miracles. Right? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, with no disrespect, you've given the first 15 minutes of your presentation, and, and you haven't mentioned God. I haven't mentioned God. We'll get there. Okay. We'll see that this was all about God. Right. Did we mention miracles? Yes. Where do we, which one of the seven are miracles? Seven. To trust in an entity, does that entity need to have miracles? Is that a reason for me to trust in an entity? If you believe in Hashem and your protection... I don't believe in Hashem yet. Don't say that to your parents. I don't know, I don't believe in Hashem yet. 
You have an open conversation. You don't just do something because you take a leap of faith. That's not the way Judaism works. We're thinkers. If, so, if there's a miracle that happens, does that mean that I'm going to change my life completely because of a miracle that somebody told me about? Would that, would that exclude the other seven? I, I, there's a good conversation. Okay. Let's get there. Let's, bring, let's, let's, work our minds, let's work our minds through this. Okay? Here we go. So, ability to perform miracles is not on the list of seven criteria that the Chavos of lays out for us, nor should it be. Fine. Now, we certainly do find times where HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or God, creates miracles. It's throughout the Torah. In our personal lives, we may have experienced miracles. Okay? Which is why when you go to Asia Torah, and you go to these places where they help People, you know, just get a little, a little taste, start tasting Yiddishkeit. And then what, you know, what's important to know is that the, it's important to notice the miracles that come into our daily lives and are really happening on a constant basis. And Hashem's creating each of these miracles. But the, the miracles itself is not to give us the pre-existing knowledge. It solidifies something else. Once I know there's a God, for example, like an atheist, a discovery seminar, they'll prove to people you cannot be an atheist. You cannot. Any human being cannot be an atheist. It's, it's ludicrous to be an atheist. You can be agnostic. You could be a believer. You can't be an atheist. Because an atheist, by definition, means I know there's no God. You can't know there's no God unless you know everything that does exist. If you know everything that does exist, you can say, I know everything that does exist. So I know what doesn't exist. But until you've searched out every last corner of planet Earth to know everything that exists, you can't know for sure something doesn't exist. That's what an that's atheist, by definition, that's what it means. An agnostic means I'm unsure. You have a right to be unsure. You could be agnostic. I don't know there's a God. I'm not sure. I just have not. You have a right to be an agnostic and you have a right to be a believer. We have a right to believe. By searching, by learning, and by our own experiences, there's got to be a creator. Matter comes from matter. Even if you believe in evolution, where'd that first gas come from? Something. This doesn't make any sense. What's happening? I'm allowed to be a believer that there's a creator. You can't know, right? You're allowed to be a believer. You're allowed to be an agnostic. I'm not talking about in halacha. I'm talking about as far as being a thinker. But an atheist, you can't know that that there's no God. So a miracle, what a miracle miracle does for us in Judaism, as we're going to see, is that a miracle can be used to solidify something I already know. I know there's a God, or there's a chance there's a God, and therefore, once I experience a miracle, I'm like, hello, there must be. <laughs> like, there must be. There's a miracle. There's a God. There's Hashem. There's a creator to the world. But it's not meant to be the source of reliance and trust. If miracles become the source of all reliance, oh, this guy could walk on water, so I'm going to believe in it. That's the source of my belief. That's not Torah, as, we're, as we'll see soon. Okay. Can you, can you give us a good definition of what constitutes a miracle? We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. Now I want to continue on this point, and then I want to, we'll bring this full circle to the Parsha, and how this applies to uh, a few events. So, when we came to Sinai, God took us out of Egypt, took us out of Mitzrayim. We come to Arsina. And we're offered the Torah, and what do we say? Nasev Nishma. Nasev Nishma. We will do, and then we will understand. Okay, we'll do, and then we'll understand. 
Now, on the surface, this seems a very foolish thing to do. And one of the things that Jews have been accused of many, many things in our history, one thing we have not been accused of is being stupid. Just the opposite. You know the joke, there's a guy sitting on the paper, a Jew reading the paper, reading an anti-Semitic newspaper. So his friend says, ah, what are you doing? You're Jewish, why are you reading this? He says, listen, when I read the Jewish newspapers, I hear about all the Tsars. Over here, I read these papers, it tells us we're doing great. Yeah, we run Hollywood, we have all the money, we have, this is good news. Yeah, so I like reading, that's the joke they say about it, right? So, one thing we haven't been accused of is being foolish. We've been accused of a lot of, of, a lot of other things. How can we as a people say, we're going to do something before we understand it? It's a foolish thing to do. Huh? It's a miracle. It's a miracle we got all the Jews to agree on something, right? Right? But, that, but but what's the idea here? And not only that, let's strengthen this question. This is a side question for our for our idea. But the question is, is that you know God first went to all the other nations and offered them the Torah. And what he say to them? He said to the children of Yishmael. He went to Yishmael. He said, "Take my Torah." You know what the children of Yishmael said? What does it say? God says, "I'll tell you what it says." It says, "Don't steal." And they said, don't steal. Yishmael, when he was left the house of Abraham, when he left Avram's house, he was a Bedouin and he had to steal from the past. It's the only way to live. He, he, telling us, you're taking away our livelihood. There's no way we're taking the Torah. And then he goes to the descendants of Esau, right? Whose, their power is by the sword. And they said, he says, take the Torah. They say, well, he didn't take the Torah. What does it say? He says, you can't kill. Can't kill. And what do they say? They say, yeah, what do you mean? That's our whole strength. Uh, we don't want it. There's a, there's a strong question on this. And then he came to us and we said, Nasav and Ishba. Yeah, God, whatever you want. So one question we ask is, why are we just saying Nasav and Ishba? Other question is, is as follows. Let's say I don't keep kosher. I don't keep kosher. And somebody wants to inspire me about the laws of kosher. They know my favorite, I'm from Maryland, so they know that my favorite non-kosher food is crab cakes. Yeah? Chesapeake Bay. Crab cakes. If they want to inspire me to, to keep total kosher, uh, they say, keep kosher. What does it say? They say, no more crab cakes. That's a foolish thing to do. What you could say is, listen, it's not all or nothing. You know, it, whenever you want a crab cake, eat a crab cake. But besides for that, keep kosher. Right? Something. You don't take away... Uh, I had a chavrusa here in St. Louis who, um, over time, you know, he's, he, he wasn't a Shabbos observant. And then he started keeping Shabbos for two hours on Friday night. And then he started keeping Shabbos even um, uh, two hours on Friday night. And then uh, three hours towards the end of Shabbos. Right? Because not necessarily all or nothing. You do your best to do the most. And I asked him, what was the issue with Shabbos morning? Like, what was Shabbos morning? He said I was a major college football fan. I, I couldn't give it up. He, he couldn't give it up. So he needed his college football. Most, you know, whatever, most of the games were over by, uh, you know... Three, four o'clock. So he, then he was able to go back and, and keep Shabbos. But, okay, you're going to go and take away the, like, the main thing that somebody's into? Yishmol's into stealing. That's what you're going to inspire them with? Say, you know, Yishmol, there's a beautiful thing called Shabbos. And once they start keeping Shabbos, like, God, hey, God, this is pretty good. You know, we get to rest one day a week, come together as a community. Ah, God says, you know, there's something else out there. You shouldn't be stealing. Maybe at least then they're a little inspired, you know, to do whatever. Like he start, he takes away their main thing. So the answer to this is, the answer to this is that Hakadosh Baruch Hu, God purposely did this because in order that the ultimate way to serve Hashem is to know I'm not really giving up anything. I'm only receiving. 
if a person's Jewish thinking, if a person's following Hashem, not Jewish, we're Jewish anyway, but if a person follows the ways of Hashem thinking that I'm doing this but I'm giving up so much, that's a, you get incredible reward, but that's not the ultimate relationship because that means, like, I'm giving, that, that means God's not my ultimate relationship because I'm giving up on something else. See, here's what happened. God goes to them, he says, are you guys going to feel like you're giving anything up? Children of Yishmael. Yeah, we're giving up. God says, I can't have that ultimate relationship with you then. The children of Israel, you're going to feel like giving anything up to have a relationship with me? Like, yeah. We're like, God says, I can't do that. Then he comes to us. He says, do you feel like giving anything up? And we said, no. Nasa, we will do Vinishma. Why did we say that? Because keep in mind history. Ready for this? The nation that stood at Sinai, who led us there? Who led us to Sinai? Moshe. Moshe, right, obviously under the guidance of Hashem. But Moshe was there. Who was Moshe's mother? Yocheved. Who's Yocheved's dad? Levi. Who's Le- so Levi is Moshe's grandfather. Who's Levi's father? Jacob. Yaakov. Yaakov was Moshe's great-grandfather. Yitzchak was Moshe's great-great-grandfather. And this is all of us as a people. We think like a, there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then like Harsina is like I the whole years in Egypt, and then Sani. It's like a whole different era. This was, they were, they were great-grandchildren, like three generations. This is great-grandchildren of our forefathers. Moshe was a great-grandson of Abraham. So we had... When God came to us, we were already mishpacha. This wasn't like a blind like leap of faith or whatever. We, our family, our, our, my great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather and great-grandfather brought God to the world. He, they had the ultimate relationships. We knew when we said Nasa Venishma that the same way my dad's like, here, come here. I'll, I'll, come here, I'm telling you, you're going to love this. Like, I'm coming. You know, you know it's going to be good. You know it's going to be good. I don't even know every last detail. The Nasa Venishma, what it did is it, it showed that we're in a relationship more than it showed an acceptance of Midos or anything else. It was like, God, we're just here. We're family. We're here. This is, all, this is all one entity. We're all together. So we were literally grandchildren and great-grandchildren of, of uh, Avram Yisrael And now, so that, that's what led to our belief. That's what led to our acceptance of Torah. It was, it was in our blood. It was in our experiences. Afterwards, yeah, Hashem performed all these miracles because that's what God does. God does. When you have a relationship with Hashem and Hashem wants to send you a message, but that's, that's what He does for us. But is that the foundation of our relationship? No, the foundation comes from experience and it comes from, uh, it's, it comes from the way that we, we um, interact with HaKadosh Baruch Okay, now, let's bring this full circle now. This means... That we have to take this idea of belief and miracles and experiences and translate that in how we relate to Hashem and how we relate to others. See, here we go. Let's get to our Parsha. What our Parsha does as follows. Our Parsha begins, uh, not begins, but our Parsha gets into the story of where Isaac had to go find a... uh, Isaac was interested in getting married. And Avram sends Eliezer, his faithful servant... To, on a mission to find a proper wife for Yitzchak. And the Torah tells us that Eliezer travels to Aram Narayim and he waits by the well outside the city with all of his camels. And he starts to pray. He starts to daven to Hashem. Okay, chapter 24, verse 12. Eliezer says to Hashem, he requests, he says, Hashem, please, um, uh, give me, uh, please send a sign as to which girl is going to be a proper, uh, a proper wife for Yitzchak. And he says here, well, you know, and this the Gemara says maybe he shouldn't have done, but it worked out to the best of, you know, worked out best. He ended up a Rivka. But he says, if there's any girl who were to offer me drink 
and he offers, and she says, I'll give you and your camels, she's going to be the shidduch. Okay, the Gemara gets into why it wasn't a great idea. What if it would have, you don't know for sure that it would have been a good, uh, good person. Maybe it would have been, you know, even bad people do a good thing every once in a while. But it worked out well. It worked out well. That was Eliezer's idea. So the Torah tells us that immediately after he finishes davening, there's a young girl named Rivka. She's coming to the well with a jug on her shoulders. There's a dispute how old she was. Most people say she's three. There is an opinion of Taisvis who says that she was 14. Uh, interestingly, but whenever you hear the stories or in the Midrashim, people are going to say Rivka was three. Um, but uh, there's, there's an opinion she was 14. And the Medrash tells us that Eliezer standing there. Um, now, I want to tell you how big he was. The same Medrash that gives us all these details, tells us that whenever he came to a river, he would put a camel on each shoulder and walk across. He was bigger than the camels. So it was too deep for the camels, he just picked them up. Yeah, one on each shoulder, yalla, let's go across. So you have this monstrosity of a person, stand there by the well doing nothing, and this little three-year-old girl is, sees a guy waiting, you think she's going to offer to help? I mean, this guy could, he could lift up the well, <laughs> you know, for, for getting, needing help, for getting, needing help. To, to fill it up But she wants to help And she walks in And says Can I give water to you? Yeah So uh, he I'm sorry So he runs over to her And he says Can you give water to me? I would have said If I was there You mechutzif You're 18 times my size Go get it yourself But uh, she says Yeah you drink And I'll even give to your camels And they did what they finished drinking Okay Now in Pesach Yates It tells us Rivka was coming She goes to the well And the water ascended towards her The water came up to her That's a miracle. Did Eliezer, here's where I want to bring this full circle. Did Eliezer say, oh, you must be incredible. What a shidduch for Yitzchak. Mm, look at that, the water's going up. Water's going up. It's a great story, Rabbi Yisrael Reisman tells over. I love this. So Reisman tells over a story. It's a true story. It happened just a few years ago with a man in his, in his uh, shul, in his congregation, who was in his 50s or so, and somebody wanted to set him up on a shidduch with a, a woman, also maybe in her upper 40s, and she had, um, she had a few children, and particularly one young child, I think like a two or three-year-old. And they were set up for a, to first speak by phone, have like a phone date, you know, a phone conversation first, and then, you know, if it goes well, maybe they'll meet. So they set up a time for like 8 p.m. And... This guy uh, didn't have such great. Uh, he didn't have such. Uh, he didn't have such great uh, luck with people who he was being set up with. So before the phone call, he's like, he's like, Hashem, like, I don't know, just give me a sign. Like, I'm just so like, it's so hard, it's so hard. Just give me a sign whether it's the right one or not. Okay. So he calls. In the meantime, on the other end, see, so he calls. Uh, he calls her up, and at seven thirty. That's the time they made up to speak. She picks up the phone and she sounded like very frazzled. And he says, is, is it a good time? She says, I apologize. She says, it, it usually is and my, my kids usually sleep in. But I apologize. He just decided to flush his, his toy down the toilet and the water's rising up to me. He says, oh, that's my sign from the Torah. <laughs> Eliezer went to the well. The water's coming up. Baruch Hashem. And Rabbi Reisman said, they ended up getting married. <laughs> they ended up married. They're in this congregation. All right. So, so uh, huh? He's a 
there's a plumber. <laughs> the, the water's coming up. So the, the water comes up. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle. God's doing a miracle for Rivka. Or maybe she's doing it herself. What do you know? But this is, a, this is an incredible thing. And this is not a standard event that's going to happen. And then the next pasuk, Eliezer goes running over to her. And he still has his deal in mind. What's his deal? Ah, if she offers me, beseder. Then we're going to go for it. If she doesn't offer me, then I, I, I'm not impressed. He's not impressed with the miracle. What is he impressed with? Whether she is going to actively go and offer an opportunity for chesed. And we have many Gemaras like this. There's Gemaras and uh, our time's pretty much up, so I want to just start bringing this full circle. But I prepared a number of Gemaras. Gemara and Bava Metzia, well-known Gemara, Nun Testament Beis, 59b. The Gemara talks about disputes amongst the sages. And once the sages, I'll prove that I'm right. If I'm wrong, then let this tree, random tree, out right outside the, the, the yeshiva, should pick up and fly 400 cubits away. And you see the tree just like, picks up, flies across. And I'm like, yeah, no biggie. That's not a proof. The Torah is not in heaven. It's between us. What are you bringing a proof from a tree? So he says, let the stream that's rushing this way, there was like a creek next to the yeshiva rushing this way, should start flowing the other way, uphill. If I'm right. And he was right. So the whole thing started going up, started going backwards. And everybody, everybody ultimately tells him, we're, we're not impressed. And they, and they disputed him, and they ultimately, majority of the yeshiva disagreed with him, and the halacha was not like him. And the Gemara goes on to say that they later on, they found Eliyahu Anavi, the prophet Elijah, Rav Nussin, met Eliyahu Anavi. He says, what was God thinking when, as this is going on in the yeshiva? He's obviously helping Rabbi Eliezer and uprooting the tree and turning it backwards. And Eliyahu Anavi says, God smiled at all this. And he says, my children have defeated me. They're right. They're right. This is how Torah works. You have the right sages in the right room and they give the ruling that they feel is correct, and that's the MS. That's going to be the truth in this world. What the Gemara is teaching us is that if, if we want to know what's an Adam Ashal and how to live our lives in a, in a complete way, a complete person, a refined person, that's how we know to follow ourselves, and that's how we know to follow somebody else. How connected they are, not to miracles, but how connected they are to the ways of God. And this is the thrust of, of what, where we want it to go. How connected is this person to the character traits? Not the miracles, not the incredible things. If a person could pull off a supernatural feat, that speaks nothing about how impressed we are about them. You first, you need what we call the meat and potatoes. You need the kishkas. It's true with our relationship with Hashem, and it's true about our relationship with anybody else. Afterwards, okay, a miracle can solidify something that I already know. But the Torah is letting us know it's more impressive to live in the ways of God than have anything to do with, with uh, supernatural events. So to clarify, where does miracles play a role? Just to solidify something we know, but it can never be the basis of, of uh, our belief system in Hashem or in anybody else. That's it. We clarify overall? Good, we brought God into this, is good? You know, respectfully, Rabbi, you could come back next Thursday, next Wednesday, and, you know, keep, keep going to elaborate. Keep going. Absolutely. I, I know people. I can get you invited. Thank you. There's a... Uh, yeah. yeah the, 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 they tell over a story. There was a rabbi that came in, and he asked the people, he's like, he's like um, he said, uh, what do you want me to talk about? So they said, oh, whatever you want. He says, so, so, should I speak about... Uh, 
you know, the importance of Torah education? They're like, eh, not really. <laughs> so should I speak about uh, kosher? Eh, not really. Should I speak about that? Eh, she says, what do you want to talk about? Eh, talk about God. Talk about God. <laughs> it's, what God it's what Hashem wants. That's what Hashem wants. You know, that's... Uh, that he wants us to be involved in. All right, Yeshikayach, sorry for keeping you a little overtime.